nice welcome mat. Got, got maybe one that sits in front of the front door and it's got like a little pineapple on it and it has the words, hey y'all, you know, right there on the front. Or maybe you have a different kind of doormat. Maybe it's one that has, you know, something about your family. You know, it's, you know welcome to the Griswold house, you know, there on, on the front mat. Or, or maybe you have something that's a little more instructive. You know, your, your mat in front of the door says, unless you have tacos, unless you have Girl Scout cookies or my Amazon package, please leave. You know, maybe, maybe that's what your mat says. Or maybe your door, doorbell doesn't work, so your mat says, doorbell doesn't work, please say ding-dong really, really loud. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Or maybe you don't have a welcome mat. Maybe at the end of the day, you open up the door, and one of your kids is standing there, and he says, welcome home, Dad. Mom's in the kitchen on the floor crying. The toilet is backed up. The dog threw up on the dining room table rug. And Eddie Haskell's going with us this week on vacation. So come on, Dad. It's going to be great going to be great. Regardless of what kind of welcome mat you have, we are always welcoming things into our hearts and into our minds. Constantly, always welcoming things into our hearts and our minds. So what is the greatest thing you can welcome into your heart and your mind? What's the greatest thing that you can welcome? Greater than tacos, greater than Girl Scout cookies, greater than your Amazon package. What is this thing that with no exaggeration, that if you will welcome this into your heart and your mind, it will actually change your life today and change your life forever? What kind of welcoming is that? Well, let's see if we can find out. Luke at James chapter 1, verse 21. James writes this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. I have a friend of mine who's a chicken farmer, and when you go into the side of their house, the first room you come to on the right is is the chicken room. Uh, If I remember right, it has a a washing machine, uh, and then it has a a shower. It's kind of like a little bathroom with a a washing machine in there. And, And that's where, when he comes in at the end of the day or whenever he comes back from the farm, that's where the chicken clothes go. That's where the chicken shoes go. Uh, because if you've never been in a chicken house, it smells really, really, really bad. And it gets all over your clothes. So that chicken room is where he comes to, to put aside the chicken clothes and the chicken smell. He doesn't take that through the whole house. As Christians, we need a chicken room. That's what we need. We, we need to be putting aside the, the filthiness of sin. Putting it away from us. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that we put aside the filthiness. We put aside the wickedness. We put aside our sin. We don't take it with us all over the house or all over the church or all over work or all over school or all over the community. The whole idea is that we're putting it aside. That every day, all day, we are going to the chicken room. Now, what kind of filthiness is he talking about? What kind of filthiness and wickedness should we be putting off to the side? Because truthfully, if we're honest, hey, we're at church this morning. We're not filthy, wicked people, you know? So we don't think of filthiness and wickedness as anything that has anything to do with us. So how would the Bible describe this concept of things we need to put away? What do they look like? Well, here's just a kind of a basic list of things that we see in Scripture. Disobedience, greed, hate, Jealousy, murder, arguing, complaining, lying, gossip, backstabbing, 
pride and boasting. Those are things we, we should put away. Any time in history, not just in 2021, any time in history, that list works. Those are things we should be putting away. We should be putting aside. And how much? How much of those things should we be putting aside? 50%, 75%, maybe a little more on Sunday than we do on Friday? James says we should be putting all of it aside. Not, not a portion. That we should have an attitude that's always desiring to put these things aside, to put filthiness aside, to put wickedness aside. And why should we have an attitude like that? Why should we want to put things like that aside? But we should want to because Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. See, our motivation doesn't need to be our our parents or our teachers or our pastors or, or even the law of the land. Our motivation needs to be that we have seen and known that Jesus came from heaven to earth to make a way to take our sin, not part of it, but the whole of it, to take our sin away so that we will bear it no more. That's our motivation. Our motivation is when we get saved, we love to have a chicken room. We long to have a chicken room. We want to put aside the filthiness. We want to put aside the wickedness. We don't want to hang on to those things. We want to be changed. We want to be different. There's that old phrase, once saved, always saved. And that's true, but you have to be once saved. And one of the ways you know that you've been once saved is you go to the chicken room. One of the ways you know that you've been once saved is you are putting aside sin. Not perfectly, because none of us are perfect, but you're engaged. You're engaged in putting aside sin. You're you're working at putting aside sin. You're working at putting aside and taking it off. And again, what kind of things are we talking about? I think it's good for us to hear them again. I'm just going to go through them one more time. Just see, have you had any of this How about let's just really hurt our feelings. Have any of these things come from your mouth in the last hour? You know that means why you've been at church, so I'm kind of hurting our feelings there. But at least the last hour, but how will just say the last last two days? Disobedience, greed, hate, jealousy, murder, arguing, complaining, lying, gossiping, backstabbing, pride, and boasting. Put them aside. That, that, that's what we're called to do, to, to put them aside. And if we don't, it's just strange. As believers, it's just strange. I mean, imagine you go to your chicken room and you go to that shower and you look in and it's just full of mildew and mold. I mean, just all over the place. So you grab some mold and mildew spray cleaner and you go in there and you spray it all over the place except this one spot. This one spot of, of mold, that, that black moldy mildew sitting right there. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to spray it on that spot. It's kind of got a little design. It, it looks like little baby Yoda right there. I think I'm just going to leave that right on the shower. I'm not going to do anything to that. No. no we're going to spray it all over the place. We're not going to just spray parts. We're, we're going to spray it everywhere. We're not going to think that a design of mildew is cute. Listen, here's what we desperately need to remember. Sin makes no cute designs in your life. Sin is not something that is true. It's full of lies. And sin's desire is to kill your 
soul. So the notion of of not putting it aside, the notion of keeping it, the notion of saying it's no big deal is foreign to our souls. Because part of what it means to be in Christ is that we would do the opposite. Somebody put it this way, it's kind of like a civil war general. And he gets his troops together right before they go into battle. He said, now men, when you go into battle today, don't worry about the cannons and the rifles. I want you to focus today on the enemy's bayonets. I want you to focus on those knives on the end of their guns. That's all you need to focus on. Forget the bullets, forget the rifles, forget the cannons. You just focus on the knives. That's foolish. But likewise, it's, it's foolish for us as believers to know their sin in our life, to see their sin in our life, to either ignore it or pick out the easy sins to deal with. We need to spray the cleaner everywhere. The, the call on our lives is to go into the chicken room all the time, to put it aside, to take it off, to take the filthiness, take the wickedness, take the boasting and the bragging and the arguing and the complaining and the anger and the fear and the worry and everything, just take it off. Don't, don't hang on to it. So if we take that off, what are we supposed to put on? James tells us, verse 21, in humility, receive the word implanted. We put on the word. Now, we do some interchanging here. The word of God, the truth of God, the Bible, we're going to use all of that together. So, so the Bible, the word of God, the truth of God, that's what we should be implanting in us because we've received it. What does that mean? Here's what it means, very simply. It means when you hear something of the truth of God, when you hear something from the Bible... You are quick to listen, quick to embrace it, quick to enjoy it, and quick to apply it. The reality is, we're sometimes quick to resist it. We're quick to to push it away. We're, We're quick to have nothing to do with it. Or we're quick to maybe only listen to it on Sundays. But not just Sundays. Any day. If you are reading your Bible, if you're reading a devotional book, if you're listening to a sermon, if you're listening to a a podcast about God, if you hear a hymn or you hear a praise song or you hear a choir song or you see something from the Bible on a refrigerator magnet, wherever you see God's truth, hear it, receive it, listen to it, read it, embrace it, don't push away. Take it on, put it on, let it be part of who you are. As Christians, the the Word of God is like spiritual oxygen for us. We have to breathe it in over and over and over again. We can't push away from it. I saw something this past week that, that said that this aspect of breathing in some deep doses of God's Word is so important because if we don't have deep doses of God's truth going into us, we will get caught up. We will be vulnerable to be taken over by the mindsets of the world. It's true for all of us. If we don't have a lot of God's truth in our minds, we will be taken away by whatever we are welcoming in at that moment. Now, we're going to go on a little bit of a a grace trip for just a second. Not a guilt trip, but a grace trip, okay? So let's just look at yesterday, okay? Let's just just do Saturday. Now, I'm going to guess that yesterday... There are some of us that spent more time on social media than we did reading our Bible, okay? All right? Grace trip, not guilt trip. Stay with me, all right? And I'm imagining that yesterday, there's a lot of us that we spent more time 
gardening or doing yard work or pontoon boating or fishing or hunting or playing golf or or baking lasagna or grilling steaks or watching TV or, or whatever we were doing more than we were listening to sermons or listening to podcasts about God. Okay. Now again, grace trip, not guilt trip. So what we're not saying is that from now on you have to sit at the table all day long reading the Bible and then a crust of bread, a glass of water, and off to bed. That's not what we're saying. But here's what we are saying. According to the truth of God's grace, and according to the truth of God's word, it's this. That hours of talk radio, and hours of TV, and hours of social media, and hours of hobbies, and hours of anything else that you put in that blank will not help your marriage, will not help your parenting, will not help your attitude about your life or your attitude about this country or your attitude about the world or your attitude about the church the way that the gospel will help you. In fact, most of those other things will pull you away from God in some way, shape, or form. Doesn't mean they're all evil. It just means that there is a great propensity for anything that's not truly about God to pull us away from God. That's why we memorize scripture. It's why we memorize songs that we sing about God. Because we may find ourselves in the moment where we don't have the big family Bible. And so we listen to talk radio, and we listen to the TV, and we read the newspaper, we scroll through social media as people who have the gospel. Meaning that the gospel cancels out anything that says to us, be afraid that the gospel cancels out anything that says to us, be angry. Because the gospel keeps being good news, good news, good news, good news, good news. How much good news do you have in your life right now? And how much bad news do we have in our lives right now? Are we good news people or bad news people? Or are we people that enjoy the beauty of the gospel? Do we see and understand and know that that God is the everlasting God? He is God and He is God alone. And He has sent His only Son to rescue and redeem you. That news will help you. That news will change your life. Put on that news. Put on that news. Put on that news. And we have to do it over and over again. We need deep doses of the truth of God. Because it's only the truth of God that will change us. So we put it on. And how are we supposed to put it on? Well, James says we're supposed to put it on with humility. We're supposed to to breathe in the truth of the Bible. Breathe it in like it was oxygen. We're supposed to breathe it in with humility. So what is humility? C.S. Lewis said a great little small paragraph about what it would mean to bump into someone who has humility in their life, a humble person. I love this. All you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So, Do we seem like intelligent, 
chaps and chapettes. I don't know the female equivalent. We'll go with that. Does anybody ever see that in us? Do they see in us that when we talk to them that they're, they know that we're interested in what they're saying? We're interested in, in what's going on with them? Or, or we, do we just vomit up everything going on in our mind and everything we saw on social media, everything we're afraid of, worried about, or angry about? Do people see the good news in us? Are we giving ourselves deep doses of good news so that we can help our own hearts, but we can help the hearts of others as well? Are we receiving God's truth with humility? How do we go about doing that? Well, Jesus had a cousin named John. And when Jesus was about 30 years old, cousin John said this about Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, in the life of a Christian, we're supposed to be thinking much of Christ. We're supposed to be thinking a lot about Christ. You know, the old, the old phrase, well, you know, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Can I just say, ain't none of us ever been guilty of that. Not for a millisecond. We're never heavenly minded enough, ever. So we're supposed to be thinking of Christ, not thinking of self. But here's the math. Oh, it's fantastic. The more you think of Christ, guess what? Self gets everything it needs. It's, it's amazing math. As Jesus increases, we don't feel like we're decreasing. We feel like we're getting everything that we possibly could need. We're receiving and receiving and receiving. And it's good for us. And it makes a difference in the world. That's the attitude we have to bring to the Bible. It's, it's the, the same attitude we bring to the truth of God's Word. An attitude of humility that receives and receives and receives. Imagine you're in a, an automobile accident, and you're hurt bad enough that you can't get out of the car, and, and the paramedics and the, and the, uh, you know, the EMTs and the firemen, they all show up, and they, they show up, they get up next to the car to help you, and you go, ah, go away. Unplug those jaws of life. I, I don't need your stinking help. Go on, I, I got this. That'd be foolish, right? And yet that is a very similar approach that many, as professing Christians, we, we do this sometimes. We approach God's word that way. We really do. We say, uh-uh, stay, stay away. Sure, we like some you know, sermons that we hear on some of these fantastic Old Testament stories. We, we like some of the neat, loving stories about Jesus from the Gospels. And there's a lot of folks, boy, they love when the preacher will do a little, little hellfire and brimstone, a little God and country sermon. Oh, yeah, we like those. But we don't always like when the sermon or the Bible study or the Bible verse or the devotion says something to us that says that we have to change. That our attitude at home has to change. That our attitude at church has to change. That our attitude about the country has to change. That our attitude at work or at school has to change. That we have to do something different. We have to say something different. We don't like those sermons. It's okay, let's just be honest. If we're honest, we usually like our ears tickled a lot more than we like our hearts punched. And yet it's the heart punch that's best for us. It's that reminder of, of putting aside 
that reminder that, that God is there to rescue us when we can't get out of the car. Online or in person, whether you're listening to a sermon or, or sitting in a Bible study or, or reading your Bible yourself or, or doing a devotional book or, or listening to a podcast about God, you know, one maybe like Make Your Own Headlines, it appears Monday through Friday on Amazon Podcast or, you know, as a little pitch. You can find it anywhere you want to listen. But wherever you're hearing God's truth, wherever you're listening to God's truth, receive it with humility. Put it on. Take it on. Let it be a, a part of who you are. And look, I'll, I'll be honest, that's not always easy, is it? It's not. Sometimes engaging with the truth of God, it's like you're, you know, eating a, a slice of cinnamon roll apple pie with a scoop of salted caramel ice cream on the side. Boy, it just feels good. Yeah, come on, God. I love that. Man, I'm, I'm encouraged. This is great. And then other times, engaging with the Word of God, engaging with the truth of God, it feels like you're getting a root canal in a county that outlawed numbing medicine, right? It don't feel good. It hurts. But regardless of whether it hurts or whether it feels sweet, receive it, receive it, receive it, take it on, embrace it, keep embracing it, keep putting it on. Someone said receiving God's Word with humility is, is not a, a difficult thing, but it could be broken down this simply. Receiving God's word with humility means not arguing with it. It means not rejecting it. It definitely means not taking it and twisting it to fit your politics or your view of a pandemic or your opinion about anything else on the globe. You take God's word as it is, you receive it, you embrace it. In other words, what you do is when you hear the truth of the Bible, you say, hey, y'all, come on in. When you hear these words of truth from God's book, you say, hey, y'all, come on in. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. To receive God's word, to receive his truth with humility means that you are willing to listen to God. You're inclined to listen to God, and you're enthusiastic about listening to God. Why should you be enthusiastic about listening to God? James tells us. Look at that's part of verse 21. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The Word of God, the truth of God, the Bible, reveals to a person the truth about the cross of Jesus. Reveals the truth that Jesus rescues and redeems and saves. In other words, the truth of the Bible tells us about Jesus. And when we hear about Jesus, we hear the greatest news that exists anywhere. We hear that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life, and we hear that we can have life through him. We hear there is a way to escape the terror of hell, to escape being separated from God forever. And there's a way to be right with God. And there's a way to be with Jesus. There's a way to be saved. There's a way for our souls to be saved. And when your soul is saved, one of the first things you do is you set up a chicken room. <laughs> That's what you do. You, you, you begin putting aside, putting aside. You learn the habit of putting aside. And the beauty is, once you've been saved, 
It's not just that God saved your soul once, but He keeps saving you every day from the chokehold of sin in your life. And how does He do that? Because He keeps reminding you through His Word that Jesus loved you and gave Himself up for you. And over and over again, you hear this truth that Jesus saved you, that that the Word of God tells you that, that if you will believe in it, cling to it, that it will keep saving you, keep protecting you. In a sense, it will keep you alive because you'll keep those deep doses coming in. We have deep doses of lots of stuff coming into our lives. We really do. And I promise, I'm not trying to give any of us a guilt trip about sitting down and studying our Bibles for 10 hours. But really, 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 our attitudes are being driven by the news. Driven by social media, driven by the radio, driven by our opinion. And the reality is we're a discouraged people. But the gospel's good news. The gospel's great news. The gospel's grand and glorious news that we should be putting on. We should be taking deep doses in. That's why it's great news. That's why God has done that. Do you know how many things are happening in your life right now this morning that you can't even see that are at war against your soul? Lots of things. Things we can't see. But see, God designed the Bible. He designed His truth to help us fight those wars. And part of the way we do that is we're reminded of what it means to love and follow God. We receive His Word with humility and His Word helps. It's what it does. William Farley became a Christian when he was 22 years old. His soul was saved when he was 22. His dad loved him, but his dad was not a Christian. So he couldn't turn to his dad for spiritual help. But there was another man, a, a believing man, that, that after he got saved, took him under his wing, invested in him, helped him love and follow God. And so I would just ask, this is, I guess, for men and women, but do you have a William in your life? Is there someone that you could be helping love and follow God? If you're over 75, you are not done. And if you say that, it's sin. You're the most important people in the life of our church because you've had the gospel for a long time and you have the beauty and the glory of God. Please invest it. Please don't say your time is done. We need you. If you're 25 or 35 and you've been a Christian for six months or two years or 10 years or 15 years, is there a William in your life? Is there somebody you know at work or school in your neighborhood, somebody that you could help come alongside God? We've baptized a lot of people in the last two years at this church and a lot of them have been under the age of 25. Have you sought them out? Have you come along and encouraged them? Or have you thought, well, that's the pastor's job? See, the church will never be healthy if everything's the pastor's job. See, the church is healthy when we all say, hey, where's my William? Where's where's my William? So this man poured into William's life, and William's older now. He's got five grown kids and 22 grandchildren. (laughs) left. This is his advice on humility 
and trying to be a great father. He said this, Genuine faith and sincerity will manifest itself when a man is willing to admit that he is wrong. That, that's a picture of true greatness as a father and as a man. He goes on to say this, Many think humble people are weak and passive. The truth is the exact opposite. Humility is a byproduct of great faith, and faith always acts. It always acts. This means it initiates. And he quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis suggested that masculinity is the willingness to initiate. Men, masculinity is the willingness to initiate. So if you're passive, you're missing masculinity. Masculinity is the willingness to initiate. And then he says this, God is the great initiator. He initiated creation, redemption, and our salvation. And in the same way, spiritual fathers initiate. We initiate. So, fathers, grandfathers, how are we doing at initiating? Do you initiate conversations about God? Do you initiate acts of service for God? Do you initiate attitudes that honor God? Do you initiate? Are you initiating? A godly father knows that the way to lead is to receive God's word with humility, to welcome God's word with humility, to go to the chicken room all the time and to put on the truth of God. So, fathers, grandfathers, how are we doing it welcoming the truth of God into our lives? Maybe Father's Day is an awkward day for you. Maybe Father's Day is one of those days that you have a, a strange relationship with your dad or, or you didn't have a relationship with your dad or, or maybe your dad is, is no longer with us. And maybe you had or have a, a passive father or a dictator father. Or maybe you have an apathetic father or maybe you have an absent father. Callie was working as a cashier and she was there at her cashier monitor and a woman came through the line. She said, you know what, honey? She said, I bet your dad was in the military. She said, no, ma'am. She goes, well, I just can't believe that because you are so nice and so polite. You just seem like you come from a military family. And Callie said, well, actually, ma'am, I've, I've never met my father. And the woman didn't respond. The conversation kind of ended. Callie said this, the word father has always been a difficult word for me to grasp. When I hear it, I don't recall any memories. I don't see a face. I don't know a voice to associate with it. I don't connect with it at all. But she's a follower of Jesus. Her soul has been saved. So although Callie is still impacted by the reality of having an absent father, she, in humility, keeps receiving God's truth over and over again. So her attitude has completely changed. This is what she said. My father has not been present, but my heavenly father is omnipresent. That's good. What does it mean that God is omnipresent? I heard a great definition. It goes like this. God exists 
everywhere and every when. Everywhere and every when. He is eternal and omnipresent. And not only is He present everywhere, He is everywhere pursuing us. He is the hunter, the king, the husband, approaching us at an infinite speed. Infinite speed. Fathers, grandfathers, anybody else who can hear my voice, with grace and mercy and rescue and love and salvation, God is pursuing you with infinite speed. So, for the good of your soul, for the good of your soul, put out your welcome mat for God.